Wasn't that already a great worship service this morning? Let's thank our worship team for leading us before the throne of Christ today. Thank you, Jason. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Armstrong, and uh, I am the uh, soon-to-be-relaunched Riverview campus pastor. And uh, I've got some good news for you. Last time I was here, I told you uh, we've got a great core group, and we're building that core group. We're training that core group. A lot of exciting things, but we did not have a location. And without a location, it's really hard to launch a church. But the good news is we have a location. We're going to be launching our church at uh, Sumner High School in South Riverview, a great location right in the thick of everything that is going on in and around the uh, rapid growth of Riverview. And really it was the very first place that I went to look at, uh, but it wasn't available. And we started looking all around Riverview. Nothing was available. Nothing was available. And uh, we decided, all right, it's time to get real serious. Our core team was praying. You've been praying. I came up here. I gave uh, an update. And within 48 hours later, the Lord had opened the door to that school. So we are launching September 10th. Let me just give you a quick preview of what this uh, school looks like. We have a video for you. Uh, Brand new facility. Go ahead and run that uh, video of Sumner. Brand new facility, just about four years old. So it has all state-of-the-art technology throughout. Plenty of space. I think there's something like 3,000 students Uh, that attend this particular school. Great access in uh, and off 301, big parking lot, uh, easy sight lines. Uh, I can show you all kinds of pictures. I could talk all morning. You can tell I'm very excited about, but let me give you a a preview of what we're going to be using as our worship center. It's their auditorium. Again, state-of-the-art auditorium seats 400 people. And so we need to be praying that the Lord will fill that auditorium with those who are far from Jesus, who need Jesus. Amen? That's what's coming uh, September 10th. So continue to pray. Uh, very excited about launching that ministry. But being a campus pastor at Riverview is only half my job. The other half of my job is that I'm the multi-site strategist. Now, what that means is If you remember back in the fall when Pastor Corey launched his Go 2030 vision, he had six aspects to it. One of those aspects was to launch five new campuses in seven years. It's a big goal. Uh, My job is to champion that effort. So we're relaunching Riverview. This next year, Lord willing, we'll be launching a second Espanol campus, and we're looking for locations around the greater Tampa area for the, for the other three locations. So in essence, we're moving out. We're moving out from this location all throughout not only Apollo, not only Riverview, but all throughout the Tampa area. And like I said, this is a bold vision from our lead pastor. Now, I've had the opportunity to work alongside of Corey long enough to know he's a visionary leader. 
He's a great leader. But listen, great leaders need great congregations. People who will lead, follow, volunteer, be involved in the vision of their lead pastor. Because great leaders who have great congregations will ultimately have great churches. And believe me, launching new campuses isn't easy. It's a lot of work. In fact, there's a sense it requires people to move outside of what they're comfortable with. Think about it. You would leave your well-developed ministry to start something from the ground up. So why do we do this? Why do we ask you to consider? Why do we ask you to go to be one of the sent out ones? Because of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. See Peter Wagner, a leading missiologist, said this, planting new churches or new campuses is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. Listen to that. This man says that the most effective evangelistic methodology is the starting of new churches or new campuses. Why is that? Well, you might not be aware of this, but Statistically, someone who is unchurched, someone who is irreligious, not anti-religious, irreligious, statistically is more likely to attend a startup or a new ministry rather than one that's already in existence. That's been demonstrated over and over again. There's something about a new ministry that attracts those who are unchurched or irreligious in the community. In fact, Tim Keller wrote years ago, the vigorous, continual planting of new congregations, listen, is the single most crucial strategy for the body of Christ. Nothing else, he says, not crusades, Outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing mega churches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal process will have the same consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church, or I would add campus planting. This is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any kind of study at all, it is not even controversial. This is why we must go. This is why we must be sent out. This is why I'm so excited that our, our pastor has a vision to plant more congregation, more campuses for the sake of the gospel. But we have to ask the question, how do we get there? What's required of us? What's required of us as a congregation? But even more importantly, the question, what's, what's required of me? as a Christ follower? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to turn to God's word. And if I can sum it up, I think we have to adopt the mindset. We have to adopt a Levi mindset. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, come with me in your Bibles. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter five. And I'd love to have you open your Bible. If you don't have your Bible with you, maybe an electronic Bible, turn to Luke chapter 5. 
we're going to just look at a couple verses, beginning in verse 27. And here's why. I want you to understand this story. I want to take you through this story. I want to dissect the pieces of Scripture so that you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about a Levi mindset. Levi is known as Matthew in the Gospels. He was one of the 12 disciples, but Levi comes with a bit of a sordid past. And you might be thinking, well, well, why would Jesus call him? Well, let's look into his story. I'm in Luke chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 27. I'm just going to move through it, stopping occasionally to explain the text. Verse 27, after this, he went out. Now, stop right there. I told you we have to stop so you can understand the text. See, to understand the text is to understand the context. That means all those things that went before and those things that come after. You need to understand the story. You can't just pluck Scripture out and expect that to be the accurate representation of God. So we need to understand the context of this story before we get too far into it. What's going on in this story that starts with after this? We should be asking, after what? Well, you got to go back a little bit and you find out that Jesus is ramping up his earthly ministry. And great crowds are now starting to follow him. He's in Capernaum, which is beside the Sea of Galilee. And he's been healing people. In fact, he just healed a person with a demon. Uh, he healed uh, Simon's mother-in-law. He's preaching in, a, in the synagogues. He's calling his disciples. So his messianic ministry is beginning on earth. And he cleanses the man with leprosy. Remember that? He has some great friends. There's so many crowds gathering in around Jesus that this man couldn't get to Jesus to be healed. So he's laying on a mat, and what does his friends do? They remove the tiles. Remember the story? They move the tiles from the roof. They lower him down right in front of Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And this really kind of reverbs, reverberates throughout the entire community. All right, now you're at verse 27. After this. So after all of this is going on, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now stop right there. We learn something else. We learn that our main character, Levi, is a tax collector. Now why is that so important? We need to understand that tax collectors were some of the most despised and hated men in all of Israel. You see, you need to think of them in terms of like the lowest of low, the dregs of the society. Nobody liked the tax collectors. But it was even deeper than that. You see, Herod, Herod Antipas, he was the tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, his father, Herod the Great, had started this system where they would franchise these tax booths. And if you had enough money, you could buy in to the franchise. Now, you were required to collect an appropriate amount, a certain amount for taxes. But then you could keep anything else that you could collect. You could skim off the top. And everybody knew this is what they were doing. In fact, they were, think of them as kind of the underworld criminals of the day. I mean, they were involved in larceny and extortion, exploitation, 
loan sharking. I mean, all this, this, this sums up the idea of a tax collector in Israel. But Levi isn't just a tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector. Now, why is that important? Well, remember, Rome occupies Israel at this particular time. And what they have done is that they have made Israel subject to Roman taxation. And the Jews hated them for this. So the idea that a fellow Jew would be employed by Rome to collect taxes from his own countrymen, it was beyond them. They considered Levi and other people like him as traitors. In fact, so much so they were barred from the synagogue. They couldn't go to worship. In other words, they were outsiders. In fact, a, a Jewish tax collector couldn't even give a testimony in a Jewish court. You know why? Because they thought if they're talking, they're lying. So they're on the outside, the dregs. Now, but watch this. We're in verse 27, second half. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he, this is Jesus, said to him, follow me. Now, of all the people in the crowd, he lasers in to Levi and he says, follow me. This is a very important phrase. It's only used a few times. He is, listen, calling Levi not only to discipleship, not only to be of the inner core and to be an apostle, he is called, this is a divine calling. The incarnated God-man is reaching into someone's life and he's pulling them from death to life in this very moment. It's a divine calling. And I love what happens next. 28, and leaving everything. The irresistible call of Christ, he left everything. His character, his business, his friends, everything to follow Christ. Now, you got to understand the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were also lingering around. They were always lingering around watching Jesus. I mean, they, they would have been outraged. Why? Because they based their whole system of religiosity on works, works righteousness. Here's this rabbi that comes in, sees the most despicable of all people, and he calls him, follow me. Become my disciple. They would have been outraged by this, but Jesus didn't care. Now, what does this tell you about our Lord? I mean, think about it. What does this tell you about Jesus? It doesn't really matter what you've done in your past. When you follow him, he will use you. It does not matter where you've been, what you've done. 
If he calls you, follow. Why? Because he's calling you into a relationship with him. Listen, that is not based on you getting everything figured out and cleaned up in your life. He simply says, follow me. And you know something else about this? Jesus initiates it. He initiates the relationship. He's coming to you. See, it really doesn't matter how bad you think you are. And I know an awful lot of people who think, I'm just way too bad to ever be used by Christ. Have you read through the scriptures? It's filled with people like Levi who would have been passed over by religious leaders. But Jesus laser focuses into him and says, follow me. You're never too bad to be used by Christ. Now look at verse 29. Here's where we get to see the Levi mindset. And Levi made a great feast in his house. That's important. We'll come back to that. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. Now what does he do? He throws a party for Jesus, invites him into his inner home, into his house, and notice who else he invites. He invites all his irreligious friends to meet Jesus. Now, look carefully. It says he invites tax collectors and others. You see that in verse 29? Well, who are the others? Well, actually, the word others is defined in verse 30 for us. It says, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, what's it say? Sinners. It doesn't say others here. It says sinners. It defines it. Same word. And that word sinners, you know what it means? It's a technical term that means those who are not concerned with the Mosaic law. So who does Levi invite to be with Jesus? All his other cronies, all his other tax collector buddies, and then all the others who would have been deemed as outcasts, religious outsiders, sinners, irreligious disenfranchised people. What I love is Jesus accepts the invitation. Now, if you, if you kind of can understand a little bit about what's going on, Matthew invites Jesus into his home. This home was probably open because of the arid climate. There would have been a courtyard. Remember, lots of people were following Jesus. So it's likely that the Pharisees and his disciples and other people in the community were in the courtyard looking into Matthew's home and they're seeing all of this. And what, does the, what, what, what do the Pharisees say? They start grumbling and they say, well, why, why does he eat and drink with tax, the tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't get over the reality of the mission of Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't care what the community thought. He didn't care what the religious leaders thought. He didn't care what the disciples thought. He didn't care what the believers thought. He came with a clear mission. Notice it, it's in verse 30. He says, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Verse 31, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I, here it is, I have not come to call the righteous, 
But the sinners, those not concerned with the Mosaic law, those who are outsiders, those who are irreligious, those who are unchurched, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. Let me remind you, that's not only the mission of Christ. It's our mission. Do you remember what Jesus told us in the Great Commission? Some of the last words he said before his ascension. He said, go. By the way, he wasn't talking to us as an organization. He wasn't talking to the church. He's talking to us as individual disciples, individual believers, individual Christ followers. He says, you go make disciples. That's the central verb of the text. You Personally, go, make disciples, teach them everything I told you, and I'll be with you to the ends of the world. See, this was not just the mission of Jesus. Jesus is laying a foundation for the mission of all those who call themselves Christ followers. You say, well, how can I be more like Levi? How can I have this Levi mindset? Two things. You ready? Number one, conviction. And number two, intentionality. Conviction. We have a conviction that the gospel is true. We have a conviction that it changes men's and women's and young people's and children's hearts. We have a conviction that what we see in the scriptures applies to people even today. And that the power of the gospel can upend lives and change people's trajectory. We believe it and we have a conviction about it. And second, intentionality. In other words, we start to become intentional about our lives and who we interact with for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why is it that the longer we follow Christ, the fewer non-believing friends that we have? If I could venture a guess, I think it's because it can be a bit messy. I think it can be awkward. It's not easy. There's lifestyle issues. There's belief differences. It's not easy. I had an awkward, messy friendship develop several years ago. Brian came into my life somewhat unexpectedly. His father was a contractor, very well-known contractor in my hometown. His son was a skilled carpenter. He was on on the crew that was remodeling a kitchen that a friend of mine had owned. old farmhouse, they were remodeling this kitchen, they brought in this contractor, 
and there was Brian. And Brian could do just about anything. I mean, he could do rough carpentry all the way to finish carpentry. He could set cabinets. He could lay floors. He could do masonry. He, he had the skills that were well beyond his age. And Brian also always had this kind of etched ring in the back of pretty much every pair of blue jeans that he had that just fit perfectly his skull can. And I remember, right, Brian used to drive this old beat-up black Ford F-150. And in the back of his truck were these disheveled tools and two-by-fours and quarter-cut pieces of plywood and half-bags of cement. And scattered throughout the back of that pickup were loads of beer cans. That pretty much summed up his entire life right there. He and I lived completely different lives. And yet somehow I found myself in the middle of this gutted kitchen having a conversation with him. I don't even know how it started. My friend lives on a farm with hundreds of acres. I've spent much of my life hunting there. And so somehow hunting started becoming a part of the conversation in that kitchen that day. And Brian tuned in on it right away. I didn't realize it, but he was a hunter. And so about 20 minutes had passed, and here we are. We're just chatting and talking about hunting until finally his dad kind of walks through, and I think Brian gets the sense of it, so he feels like he has to go to work. And so I walk out, but I started thinking as I was walking out, I really like this guy. At the end of the remodeling job, my friend invited several families as well as the contractor and all the subs, the subcontractors. Those would be like the electricians and the plumbers and the HVA, HVAC guy and all the over for a barbecue to kind of celebrate the remodeled kitchen. And Brian was there. And somehow I stumbled into a circle of these guys and they just happened to be, again, talking about hunting. And so for the next hour or so, I stood around swapping hunting stories with these people, all who were completely unlike me, all very far from Christ. Brian, right in the middle of it. I don't know, maybe about two weeks later, Brian's number pops up on my phone. And I answer it, and he wants to get together. I'm like, all right, well, where would you like to meet? And Brian's not the kind of guy that would have come to the church office. He's also not the kind of guy that, you know, you go to lunch and hang out and have a conversation. He said, I tell you what, why don't you stop by my garage tonight? Now, honestly, I'd never had a counseling session in a garage, so I thought this was going to be kind of interesting. So I show up that night. I pull into his drive. He only lived a few miles from me in the small town we were a part of. I saw the light shining out of his garage, so I just made my way in. And as soon as I stepped into that garage, I'm like, this is paradise. I mean, this is redneck heaven for me. I mean, there, there, was, a, there was a John boat sitting in one of the bays. It was uh, off its trailer, and the Evinrude motor was torn apart, and there were pieces all throughout, and there were 
intermingled with fishing flies and fishing rods. And on the wall were all sorts of heads of deer and a kind of an old mangy bear carcass hanging on another. Over on the other bay was this huge bench, workbench, filled with just about every power tool you could, you could name. Intermixed with other things, nuts and bolts and pieces of woods and scattered beer cans and whiskey bottles. And over the corner, two old ratty lazy boys right up against a, a double barrel stove. Next to it, it had to be a 1960s, all white, kind of creamish white, dirty white Westinghouse refrigerator. You know what I'm talking about? And you can imagine what was probably in that refrigerator. Well, we sit down on those lazy boys and we start talking. I think we talk for about two hours before we get to the subject. And finally, Brian approaches it. He's struggling with his dad. His dad, well-known, successful contractor. Brian sees himself as just skilled labor. He doesn't know how he fits. I venture to say he has never talked to another human about this in his whole life. And there we were. I'd like to be able to tell you that Brian showed up at our church that next week and started to become a faithful member, but that, that didn't happen. I'd like to be able to tell you that everything shifted to a spiritual conversation that night in the garage. Where we had an opportunity to talk about Jesus, but that didn't happen either. You know what? Something better happened. Brian invited me back to his garage. And the next invitation, I showed up, and all his other buddies were there too. Electricians and plumbers, framers, tradesmen, all in the, and every pickup that came, they would pop out and they'd be carrying 12, sometimes 24 packs of beer into the garage. And I gotta be honest, it was a bit awkward. I don't drink, but they didn't care. They all knew I was a pastor in town. They didn't care about that either. I was friends of Brian. That was good enough. I started popping in to Brian's garage about every other week or so just to kind of develop the relationship I started calling these guys my ATF friends, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, because that's what was going on every time I showed up. <laughs> Over time, some great things happened. I got invited on some bear hunts up to Canada, fishing trips up to Lake Erie. Got to go into their exclusive duck blind on a local reservoir, hunted some sweet private property that these guys owned and even made a trip out west to hunt pronghorn and become one of the guys. But something else started to happen. I started getting an invitation 
to other guys' garages. And I started to have some one-on-one conversations with people about some very serious things. People who were far from Christ, who never would have thought of darkening the door of a church. But here we are, huddled around a wood-burning stove in their garage, talking about Jesus. The only way you have these opportunities is if you're absolutely convinced that the gospel is real and you're intentional about getting around people who need to hear it. Two years after all this started, after a lot of time spent in Brian's garage, Brian started showing up at our church. We had some pretty pointed, serious conversations about the gospel. I don't know where he's at spiritually today, but he knows the gospel. One of the things I tell my little fledgling congregation, Riverview, is that you have to be intentional about the gospel. It can't be casual like our casual conversations we have with our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends down the street. No, it has to be intentional when we're saying that person far from Jesus deserves part of my intentionality. Often use a little phrase with them. I'll tell the folks at Riverview, you will never lock eyes with someone that doesn't matter to God. And here at Bell Shoals, they matter to us. How do you have a Levi mindset? You believe what you already believe. You have a conviction that the gospel is true and changes people from death to life, and you have intentionality that God, so in his marvelous goodness and grace, chooses to use the mouthpiece of fallen sinners like us to proclaim the greatest news that ever graced this planet. Have a Levi mindset. It'll change your prayer life. It'll change the scope of your friend group. More than that, you'll be wonderfully used by the master for the proclamation of his gospel.